The title of last week's sermon was Learning from a Rich Fool. That was last week's sermon, Learning from a Rich Fool. And the title of this morning's sermon is Avoiding Being a Rich Fool. Avoiding Being a Rich Fool. A few weeks ago, when we were in our series on covetousness and contentment, you might remember we looked at some verses here in 1 Timothy 6, specifically verses 6 through 10. Uh, that begins with, in verse 6, about godliness with contentment is great gain. And then we move through verse 10. And there were some other verses in this chapter that dealt with riches and really related to those verses that I wanted to cover. But as I looked at them, I realized they'd work very well if we cover them after looking at the parable of the rich fool. And so I wanted to read verses, study verses 6 through 10, look at the parable of the rich fool, and then come back to 1 Timothy 6 to cover these verses in 17 to 9. And this is why. The parable of the rich fool tells us what not to do if we're rich, right? Or the parable of the rich fool tells us not to do with our riches. And these verses, 17 to 19, tell us what to do if we are rich. Briefly look at verses 9 and 10 in this chapter. Verse 9, we're familiar with this. We studied it a few weeks ago. Paul says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And then in verse 10, Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so in these verses, Paul condemns those who desire to be rich. He condemns those who have a love for money. But money itself is amoral. And so he doesn't condemn those who are rich. He condemns those who desire to be rich, those who love money, but he doesn't condemn those who are already rich. And so then you could say, well, does Paul have anything to say to them? He does. He does have some special instructions to those who are rich, and those instructions are in verses 17 to 19. Now, one thing before we jump into these verses, I said it a few times, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but when Scripture talks about the rich, we tend to think that those verses apply to others, and we should remember that measured by most standards uh, of the world, and especially considering those throughout history, we are very rich. We enjoy staggering prosperity, and so please make sure you you don't tune out as we look at these verses, just because perhaps you don't look like Bill Gates, because these verses have tremendous application for, for most of us, if not all of us. Look at verse 17. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And first notice the words, charge them not to be haughty, and this brings us to lesson one. Lesson one, the rich should not, part one, look down on others. The rich should not, part one, look down on others. So you can see here, one of the main temptations that rich people would face is what? Is haughtiness or pride, looking down on others. Exactly. Riches and pride often go together. The rich, or the Greek word for haughty or prideful in some translations is to have an exalted opinion of oneself. And so it's very easy for those who have an abundance to look down on those who have less. And so Paul says, don't be high-minded. You are not your stuff. You're not better than those with less simply because you have more than them. Consider these verses, Proverbs 18 to 20, Proverbs, excuse me, 18, 23. It says, the poor uses entreaties But the rich answer roughly. One more time. The poor uses entreaties, or the poor people plead, but the rich answer roughly, or they respond very harshly, probably because they believe that they're better than them. Proverbs 28, 11, a rich man is wise in his own eyes, or is haughty, or is proud, but a poor man who has understanding 
will find him out, or in other words, will we'll see through it. So rich people can think they're wise, poor people who have some discernment or understanding can see right through that and know that rich people are not better than them. And so the question is, if you're rich, how can you prevent looking down on others? How can you ensure that this haughtiness or pride is not in your heart? And part of the answer is in verse 17. If you look there with me, it's contained in the words, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see how keeping those words in mind can prevent us from being haughty? This is communicating a truth that is really um, maintained throughout Scripture that God is the one who makes us rich. Here's four verses of a number of verses that I could give you to make this point. Deuteronomy 8.18, the Lord your God gives you power to get wealth. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. Ecclesiastes 6.2, God gives wealth so that a man lacks nothing of all he desires. And then last one, 1 Samuel 2.7, the Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. Important to keep this in mind because if you've accumulated some amount of wealth, it'd be very easy to think that you've done that and become proud of yourself. But if we keep in mind that God is the one who makes us rich, it leaves no room for haughtiness because then it's not about how great we are, which would be a cause for pride or haughtiness. If we keep in mind that God gives us riches, then it's about how gracious he is, which is actually a cause for what? Humility, thankfulness. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive or that was not given to you? If then you received it or if it was given to you, why do you boast as though you did not receive it or as though you earned it? Now, since God gives us what we have, including riches, it just really leaves no place for us to be proud. Look back at verse 17. In particular, notice the words, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And this is another temptation for the rich putting their hope in their riches instead of in God. And this brings us to lesson two, or lesson one, part two, excuse me. The rich should not part two trust in their riches. The rich should not, trust, should not part two trust in their riches. One of the other dangers with riches is they can provide a false sense of security. If you take your minds back to the parable of the rich fool that we spent the last two weeks Studying, we know this is exactly what happened to him. Luke 12, 19, he said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He clearly trusted his riches. He's confident about the future, not because his confidence is in God, but because it's in his wealth. In our nation, I would say we might live in the toughest place not to give in to this temptation because really our country makes it especially uh, strong encouragement to trust in riches. We literally are, are told to do so by the way that certain things are described. If you just think for a moment about our national retirement plan, what's it called? We talked about this when we talked about retiring the other week. What's our national retirement plan called? Social security. Social security, because it's supposed to make you feel what? Secure about your future. Some people have jokingly called it social insecurity. In case it runs out, our investments, we'll call them securities, or we call them trusts because they're meant to make us feel secure or because we're supposed to put our trust in them. We take money and we make it an idol because we'll call it the almighty dollar. And that language is used to draw an association between God himself and money. And the idea is that if almighty God 
could give you everything you want, you're expected to view money the same way, that the almighty dollar instead is sovereign and able to give you whatever you want. And there's something ironic about all this. What's the famous statement that's put on our money? In God we trust. (laughs) In God we trust. Those words first appeared on coins in 1864. The phrase was adopted as the official motto of the U.S. in 1956. One year later, 1957, the words started appearing on paper currency too. And it's ironic because that phrase itself was taken from Scripture. There's a number of verses that communicate that. Here's just a few. Psalm 40, verse 3, I will trust in the Lord. Psalm 73, 28, I have put my trust in the Lord God. Psalm 118, 8, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Proverbs 21, or 29, 25, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so we put this phrase on our money almost as a reminder when we hold it that our trust is still supposed to be in God, but there's a very strong temptation to put our trust in that very money that we're holding. And so the, you don't ever want to wish riches on someone. It's not, it's not the blessing that many people make it out to be or that our flesh would tempt us to think that it is. When you read these verses and plenty other places in Scripture, you can see there are uh, an overwhelming number of very strong temptations associated with having riches. One of God's graces is to prevent people from having more riches than they can handle. The individuals that can handle riches well typically have a considerable amount of spiritual maturity because it is such a significant stewardship. It's not one personally that I, I think I would want because I don't know that I can handle it. We don't know if we were to receive some huge amount of money that we would be able to remain close to the Lord or what effect that would have on our spiritual lives. And one of the major temptations is putting our trust in that wealth instead of putting our trust in God himself. Now, when people put their trust in their riches instead of putting their trust in the Lord, there are two possibilities as a result, and both of them are bad. One possibility is that the riches fail. The riches fail the individual who's trusting in them. Listen to these verses. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Putting confidence in our bank accounts is a path to disappointment. Proverbs 18.11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, which is to say that the rich man thinks his wealth makes him invincible, and it's like a high wall, but then it says, in his imagination. So he thinks there's a security, but it's all in his mind. So that's one of the possibilities when you put your wealth in your riches, that those riches are going to let you down. What's the other possibility, which I would say is even worse? The riches don't let you down. You put your trust in your riches and they don't let you down. When money allows people, and the reason that's a worse possibility is because when people are able to put their trust in their riches and those riches satisfy them or they're able to get whatever they want or they feel like those riches don't let them down, then they don't think that they need God. It's like we read in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, where the author said, "'Do not give me riches.'" lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? The worst thing that can happen to rich people is to get everything they want. They don't think that they need anything else. And included in that is even God himself. They find no reason or need to ever look to him. They never come to know him. They end up perishing 
like the rich fool in the parable. And this is why, part of why at least, Jesus said, Luke 18, 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. People who are rich don't have to feel bad about those riches. We've talked about the amoral nature of money, but we must be aware of the greater temptations associated with riches, and one of the biggest is putting trust in them instead of trusting God. I want to conclude this lesson by saying this. We want to have the heart of the psalmist who said, Psalm 62.10, if riches increased, do not set your heart on them. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. If God gives you more wealth, one of the worst things that can happen is to receive a blessing from the Lord that pulls you away from him. I mean, imagine the tragedy of that. God graciously bestows wealth on a person, and then that wealth ends up pulling the person further away from the giver of the gift. Now, for the next two verses, I want to do something different. We're going to read through them, verses 18 and 19. We're going to discuss verse 19 first, and then we're going to read verse 18. And the reason I want to do it this way is because verse 19 reveals why verse 18 is important. So look with me at verse 18. Let's read through them first. It says, rich people are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We'll talk about verse 19 first. This verse is about preparing for eternity. When Paul says that which is truly life, some, I've told you I'll typically look at about four commentaries on a passage to ensure that I'm going through scripture a little faster. And at times when I reach a verse that's confusing or conflicting between commentaries, I'll look at a, a number of other ones. And this is one part because when it says that which is truly life, I wonder what does this mean? Is it referring to earthly life? Is it referring to eternal life? And it's referring to the next life or eternal life. And the reason is because this life is not the real life or earthly life is not the true life. Some translations, such as the King James and New King James, I've got to give a nod to them, they actually say, lay hold of eternal life. And so verse 19 is entirely about preparing for the next life. Briefly look at verse 12, where Paul says the same thing. He says, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life, which is the same thing he says at the end of verse 19, to take hold of that which is truly life, or take hold of eternal life. When Paul says take hold, or some translations say lay hold of the next life, he doesn't mean that's something that we can obtain, that we could reach out and grasp it. That's only something that Christ himself can obtain for us. Instead, what he means is we need to get a grip on the matters associated with eternal life. That's the life we need to be focusing on, the next life. We must live with this heavenly and eternal perspective versus this earthly or temporary perspective. And Paul says this to the rich, and they probably need to hear it more than almost anyone else because their money can make them feel prepared for the future. Riches can prepare you for your earthly future, but they don't necessarily prepare you for your eternal future. When we studied the parable of the rich fool, we saw his great preparation for the rest of his earthly life, which happened only to be a few more hours, but he was completely unprepared for the next life. So Paul wants Christians prepared for the next life. So in verse 19, he says that they should store up treasures for themselves. Does that language sound familiar there? 
where he says to store up treasures. It does, doesn't it? If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words store up treasure, and you can write Matthew 6.20, because that's where Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves do not break in and steal. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, my suspicion is Paul was looking back on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he, when he wrote these words. If you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven, then like Paul says in verse 19, you're going to have a good foundation. That's what he's saying. If you're, lay, if you're using your wealth and your possessions for the next life, then you're going to be building this solid or good foundation for yourself, the treasure that can't be destroyed by moth. It can't be destroyed by rust. Thieves can't break in and steal. It's a solid and durable foundation, unlike any sort of earthly riches. And really, it relates to what Don said during his communion devotional. It's because there's a foundation laid that we're, this is the language of 1 Corinthians 3, that we're continuing to build on. It's not really that we lay that foundation. Paul says that Christ is the one in 1 Corinthians 3 who laid that foundation, who's that chief cornerstone. But we're continuing to build on that foundation. And if that foundation is going to last eternally, which is the case with Christ's work, then everything that we build on that is also going to last eternally. But anything we build, and you can read, I think it's verses 10 to 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. Don't turn there. Perhaps read as a family. That's where it discusses what is built with wood, hay, or stubble, and what's going to happen with that. It's going to be burned up. But for that which is built on Christ, as long as Christ's work lasts, then all of that work that's built on him will last. So again, it's about preparing for eternity. Paul wants true Christians prepared for the next life. Sweet. And so how are the rich going to do this? How are they going to lay hold of the next life? How are they going to have a good foundation? And the answer is by doing what verse 18 says. And so notice verse 19 in many of your Bibles starts with the word thus, because it's connecting verse 19 with verse 18. And so the idea is if rich people will do what verse 18 says, then they're going to have this strong or durable or good foundation prepared for the next life. So look at the first part of verse 18. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. And so the rich are not supposed to be only rich in riches. They are also supposed to be rich in good works. And this brings us to lesson two. The rich should prepare for the next life by part one, doing good works. The rich should prepare for the next life by part one, doing good works. Generally speaking, this might not always be the case, but rich people are going to have greater potential to do good things because their riches are going to provide them with the ability or opportunities that poor people might not have. Twice in James 2, in verses 17 and 26, he says that if our faith is living versus dead, then it's going to be accompanied by what? By works. So the point is, James says that if you have a living faith, you're going to produce works. And that's the case whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It's one of the primary evidences of salvation. But since this is said to the rich, there's clearly some special application for them. And it's not saying that the rich should be generous and giving. It does say that, but that's after this. That's the second half of the verse. So why in the first half of the verse does he say that the rich must be rich in good works? He tells them this, Because it's very easy or tempting when you're rich 
to give more of your riches than your time. And so it's as though Paul says, God doesn't just want a a tithe or an amount of your money. He wants a tithe of your time, or he wants an amount of your money. Rich people must be doing good too. And you can imagine the temptation if you're rich. If you have a lot of money, how much easier it is to give money than time. So you're going to pay for a mover to help someone move, or you're going to pay for some, versus helping them yourself, or you're going to pay for someone to clean the church versus helping clean the church. You're going to pay for groceries or a meal for someone versus taking the time to bring someone a meal. If it's a rich husband, think of how much easier it is for him to buy things for his wife or to buy things for his children versus doing good things for them or spending time with them or investing in them. For rich people, it's considerably easier to, to write that check or to pull out that credit card or to kind of click that app on that phone and and send that money away, it's much easier to think that this is valuable or this is worthwhile to the Lord. And so Paul says, you need to be giving of your time too. The Lord wants to see as many good works as he wants to see you giving of your riches. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says to be generous and to be ready to share. This probably does not come as a surprise. This is almost what seems like we've been building up to because if there's one thing from the beginning that you would expect God to say to rich people, it would be that they should be generous. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. The rich should prepare for the next life by part two, giving generously. The rich should prepare for the next life by part two, giving generously. Do you see the two things in this verse that Paul says the rich should be? The two things at this part of the verse that Paul says the rich should be. First, he says they should be generous, which refers to the amount given. And then he says they should be ready to share, which refers to the attitude that they should have when they're giving. Rich people should be anxious to use their money to meet the needs of others. And so someone ever said, describe how rich people should give. In one word, you'd answer that by saying generously. If someone said, how should rich people give? The answer is generously. And if someone said, what attitude should rich people have toward giving? Then you should say they should be willing or they should be anxious. They should be ready to share. That's what Paul's communicating here. I want to show you a New Testament verse that illustrates giving generously. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 9, 6. We won't turn back to... Timothy. Turn to 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. I think this is the clearest verse in Scripture encouraging generosity. Second Corinthians 9, 6. Paul says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully or sows generously will also reap bountifully or will reap generously. And so Paul uses this very well-known agricultural principle to encourage generosity. And the idea is pretty simple, that the amount of the harvest is going to be directionally or directly proportionate to the amount that's sown. The farmer who sows much seed is going to have a bigger harvest than the farmer who sows sparingly. And similarly, the blessing received for giving 
It's directly proportionate to the amount that's given. The Christian who gives generously is going to have a much bigger harvest than the Christian who gives sparingly. And what's interesting is when a farmer, when he sows his seed and he watches that seed leave his hand and fall to the ground, it would be tempting to think that you're losing something because of this seed that you purchased. I remember this when we seeded our backyard and it was like $250 for these bags of this seed. Well, similarly, we might feel like we're losing something when we give, instead of that seed falling from our hand to the ground, you know, it's, it's the check as it goes into the, into the offering box in the foyer, and you can feel like you're losing something. But just as the farmer gives in anticipation or expectation of a harvest in the future as a result of what he's giving, that's the point of this verse. So too, can Christians give with that exact same anticipation or expectation of a harvest in the future. Now consider the other side of this. If there's a farmer and he plants only a few seeds, perhaps he wants to hold on to as much as possible, he's going to end up with more seed in his barn, but come harvest time, he's not going to have much grain in there. So there's not going to be much harvest for that sort of stinginess. And we know this principle is important, or we could say we know this is one that God doesn't want us to miss because he repeats it throughout Scripture. I mean, there was probably about eight or nine places that I found this truth communicated. I'm just going to give you four, two from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. Proverbs 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Probably the most well-known verse, Galatians 6.9, or Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever someone sows, that he will also reap. And so it seems to be a theme throughout Scripture that to invest a little is to receive a little in return. To invest or to give a lot is to receive a lot in return. And at the end of the verse, speaking of that, notice the words, will also reap bountifully. Will also reap bountifully. That introduces some questions to us, doesn't it? What does that mean exactly? You know, does this mean that if we were to give, let's use some round numbers here, if we give God $1,000, then we're going to make sure we get back 1200 Right? Is that what it's saying? Is it saying that if we were to give $1,000 per month to the church, then we can be sure that our boss is going to give us a $1,200 raise? Another question. What do we reap from what we sow? Is this speaking physically? Is it speaking financially? Is it speaking spiritually? Another question. Is this talking about reaping in this life? Or is it only talking about the next life? Or is it talking about both? John Calvin said, The harvest, or regarding reaping bountifully, should be understood both in terms of the spiritual reward of eternal life, or the next life, but also referring to the earthly blessings with which God honors the generous. Not only in heaven does God reward the well-doing of the godly, but in this world as well. And so John Calvin believed that it referred to the next life and this life. And I agree with him because there are verses that communicate this truth. Here, here are just a couple. The, if you remember when we were in Philippians 4, 
when we were studying contentment. And Paul talked about the Macedonians and this very generous gift that they had given to them. And he discussed their giving in verses 15 to 18. You don't have to turn there, but... Then after he discusses their gift or their generosity in verses 15 to 18, listen to what he says to them in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, you've been very generous to me. And the Macedonians were actually fairly poor churches. It's not a church, it's a region. And the churches in Macedonia were fairly poor. And so Paul communicates to them that God is going to take care of you as a result. He is going to provide for you. But it's important to notice that Paul said that God would take care of every what? This is important. He said that God would take care of their every need versus their every what? Every want, exactly. So we're going to do a fun little exercise. I want to let you know at the beginning that this was Katie's idea. <laughs> I'm going to say something, and then you're going to say need or you're going to say want, okay? I'll say something, you tell me whether it's a need or a want, and let's start with something easy. Clothes. Need. Expensive clothes. All right, you guys are doing great so far. A house. Some would say want. Whoa, Jack. Jack is content with considerably less than I am. Because he doesn't need a house, so that's fine, Jack. I'm thankful for your, your humility and, and modesty. So, and apparently, yeah, your father. So, okay, so how, for the rest of us, a house is a need. Okay, okay some people are saying apartment. You guys are being argumentative this morning a little bit, huh? Okay, let's just say house, need. Well, let's make it easier. What if I say mansion? That took a little longer than I thought. I thought that I thought I'd get a little quicker response there on mansion. I thought you guys would say want. That's okay. Maybe that's good what we're talking about this. You guys can start to deter, determine what should be a need and should be a want for you. Okay, here's another one. Groceries. Organic groceries. <laughs> or some people or some, <laughs> some people said need. Okay, Katie said some people are gonna say waste of money. To organic groceries. Here's a really tough one. I think this is going to divide our church. Coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, give me a second. Coffee. Need or want? Depends on the day. Depends on how much sleep I got. Depends on what's happening in my life. You know, I would say for Katie, with Lydia crying at night, that she and being up with her so often, she would probably say that it's more of a more of a need. Last one, red leaf. Did someone say need? Okay, I'll let you know it's just a want. So I'm, I'm half joking with this, but I'm also half serious because I do think, especially living in such an opulent nation, that we can confuse these. We can confuse our needs and our wants. And if you can remember, in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then Paul goes on to say what we should be content with. Because if he says, godliness with contentment is great gain, and then you say, well, what should I be content with? What is enough? And then what does he say? We should be content with what? Basically the essentials, food and clothing and shelter. That's it. And we should be content just with that. If we give to God, it is no guarantee that he's going to make us rich on this side of heaven. That's my point. If you, if you read these verses 
And I think that probably enough people have heard them abused or twisted, often sadly from some preacher, maybe a televangelist, who wants people to give more. And so he essentially promises that if you give to God, then he's going to make sure that you're rich in return. That is not what these verses are saying. And there's something uh, terribly deceitful about implying or manipulating people into thinking that if they give, then God is going to make them rich. So this is not a promise for greater riches if you give, but it is a promise that if you give, God is going to take care of you. That's what it is. It is a promise that if you're generous, then God is going to provide for you as a result. Or a simple way to say it is nobody's ever given themselves into poverty. Nobody has ever been so generous that they become poor. And when Katie and I were talking about the sermon, she said, she said there are poor people, poor people in third world countries. They didn't give themselves into poverty. It's not as though they gave so much and then they found themselves in that situation. So there's other verses that apply to them. But for us, this is saying if you're generous, then God is going to take care of your needs. We don't give to receive, but it's nice to know that God doesn't let anyone give themselves into poverty. So there's the physical financial blessings on this side of heaven, but there's also spiritual blessings that we reap. And here's one place making this clear. Matthew 19, 27. If there's someone who had given a considerable amount to the Lord or to following him, it was Peter. And he says, and he says see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, he's saying we have sown a lot. We have given a lot for the cause. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A promise, obviously specific to the twelve, and not to all of us. But then Jesus goes on, and he says this, and this is the important part for all of us. Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, referring to the next life, and will inherit eternal life. Now, in my mind, just getting what would be good? Eternal life. But he says you're going to get eternal life and a hundredfold more than what you have given. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but I do know that God is going to reward us lavishly above whatever that we have done for him. And so, it is true to say that you can't outgive out God. I would say referring to the next life. It is true that God is not going to be outdone by anyone, or he's not going to be in debt to anyone. He's not going to owe us more than we have, have given him. We're never going to be on the losing end with him. He's going to be sure to really lavish us graciously with, with blessing or award. And, the, and that's why heaven, will, while it will be wonderful for everyone, it will be considerably different for some than others. The other week we were talking about the thief on the cross. He got to heaven, didn't he? I don't know what he took with him. (laughs) Doesn't seem like he sent a lot ahead, like we talked about last week, but his sins were forgiven. But I I guarantee that heaven is going to look much different for him than for the person who has sacrificed and given considerably throughout their lives. And I I don't put myself in that category of people who have given or sacrificed, 
tremendously. I've not went and lived in a third world country as a missionary. There's not any sort of disease or affliction or difficult marriage or relationship, or at least at this point, rebellious child or any of those really horrible things that people have to endure. I can't say that I've ever went through anything like that. And should my life continue on this trajectory of of relative peace, and then I get to heaven and I see people who have given, who have sacrificed um, considerably beyond what I have, and they are rewarded considerably better as a result than I am, then I hope I can be thankful for what they've done and for how God has chosen to, to bless them. Now, after motivating Paul's readers to give, and we're just starting this verse, we'll finish it next week. After motivating Paul's readers to give, now he explains how to give. Look in verse 9. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you just follow me for a moment, many or perhaps most of the spiritual gifts, they look like gifts. They look like spiritual gifts. Prophecy, teaching, leadership seem like gifts. Some of the other gifts, they don't look like gifts to me. For example, mercy and giving. Did you know those were gifts? Those are spiritual gifts, mercy and giving. We can't say, I have the gift of exhortation, but I don't have the gift of mercy. So I will exhort people, but I will not be merciful. Or we can't say, I have the gift of ministry, but I don't have the gift of giving. So I'll minister to people, but don't expect me to give. And the reason we can't say that is because there are other places in Scripture that command us to what? Be merciful. And other places in the scripture that command us to be involved in ministry. For example, Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, 36. Jesus told his disciples, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So if you're a disciple of Christ, you're expected to be merciful. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry. Well, that's interesting because most people look at pastors and think that they're the ones in ministry. It actually says the pastor is doing his job as equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so if you look at the beginning of verse 7, it says each one must give. Each one must give. And so even though giving is a spiritual gift, like mercy, like ministry, like exhortation, giving is still something that all of us are expected to do. And so it kind of begs the question, well, what does it mean for people that have the gift of mercy or have the gift of giving or have the gift of ministry? It just means that they're going to find those things easier than others who don't have that gift. But there's still things that are expected of everyone. So nobody can turn around and say, well, I don't have that gift. I don't have to do it. No, God commands everyone to give. God commands all believers to be merciful. God commands all believers to be serving and involved in ministry. Next, look at the words decided in his heart. And this brings us to lesson three. Give from the heart. Lesson three, give from the heart, part one. You can say, well, where's part two, part three? That's next week. You can only get to part one this week. God looks at our hearts. Giving is a heart issue. And if, if giving is a heart issue, then what should motivate our giving? Love. Thankfulness for what he has done for us. 
Take your minds back to the principle of sowing and reaping. For a physical farmer, does his heart matter when he sows? No, it doesn't. If a farmer sows good seed into good soil and he has good weather, then he can expect a good harvest, regardless of what is or isn't happening in his heart. His heart could be filled with sin. It could be filled with pride. It could be filled with selfishness that he wants to use all the proceeds from this harvest exclusively for himself. And it makes no difference how he sows, he's still going to receive the same harvest. And a good example is from the parable of the rich fool. You can see this is a man whose heart was very ugly and, and bankrupt, yet he still experienced a good harvest. But I mention that because this could not be further from the case for Christians. For Christians, the heart is everything. The heart is everything. Our motive for doing almost anything is vitally important to the Lord. In fact, it's so important. We can do the right thing, and if we have the wrong motive or the wrong heart when we do it, it has now become the wrong thing. Here's an example. Take your minds to the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 5, what are some of the things that Jesus condemns, which we understand him condemning? What does he condemn? Murder, adultery, retaliation, and we're like, yes, this makes sense for the Lord to be condemning these. You move from Matthew 5 into Matthew 6, and what do you see Jesus condemning? Prayer, fasting, fasting and giving, at least when what? They're done with the wrong heart. That's interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't expect to find a place in Scripture where the Lord himself would condemn fasting, giving, and, and service, but he does when it's done with the wrong attitude. I'm going to read just the verses about giving. Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A heart that wants to be seen by others is the wrong heart. Verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, or give to the church, or give really to anyone, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. So having the wrong heart is so serious, well, so serious that Jesus repeats it twice. He says in verse 1, and if you missed in verse 1, Matthew 6, 1, then he says it again in Matthew 6, 2, but having the wrong heart is so serious that if you were to give and there was a huge amount of sacrifice involved in that, if it was a huge amount but you have the wrong heart when you do it, then you've lost your reward. That's what he's saying. You have no reward, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the amount, if, we have, if it's done with the wrong heart. Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Obviously, hands don't have minds of their own. That's not his point. His point is that when we give, nobody else should know about it, except for who? And that's what he says in the rest of the verse. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So giving in secret, it's so admirable because it's clearly not being done to impress others. It's being done for our Heavenly Father. It's enough to know that He sees what we do. It's enough to know that He will reward us, and that's what should motivate our hearts. If you look at your bulletin, you'll notice there's just part one there. Part two, part three, part four, we'll be talking about that next week. If you'd like to prepare for that sermon, and I would like to encourage you to prepare for it, read these two passages, 
read, and they're right next to each other, read 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, it is just filled with principles for giving. And then look at these verses we talked about this morning, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. I want to conclude with something. Don't close your Bibles yet because there's one more verse that I want you to see. We've been talking about giving, and we should all get this right. Who is the greatest giver? God is. He gives us wisdom. There's many things I could list. He gives us wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally or generously without reproach. He gives us abundant life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He gives us wonderful things to enjoy. James 1.7, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. The greatest gift that the Father has given us would be his Son. Or you could say salvation. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Along with 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9 is the strongest teaching in the Bible regarding giving. And there's something I want you to notice in chapter 9. Look at verse 15. He says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So after Paul gently rebukes the Corinthians for not giving and encourages them to give, this is what he tells them. And why does he do that? Because he wants this to be their motivation. He wants them to see how much God has given for them. This is why we give. We don't give to God to earn favor. We don't give because we couldn't earn favor with the Lord. We can't, you, if you're in Christ, you cannot be viewed any more favorably by God the Father than you already are because of what Jesus has done for you. There is nothing you could ever do to gain more favor from God the Father, to be loved more by him. And that's, there's almost a, a bitter sweetness to that because it's so humbling when you recognize that there's nothing you could do to make God love you more. But at the same time, it also wells up an amount of thankfulness in our hearts. We, our flesh wants to impress. Our, our flesh wants to be rewarded, not because of what Jesus has done, but because of our effort. But we give not to gain favor, but because of the favor that has been given to us. We don't give to gain favor. We give because of the favor that has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, Christ is the ultimate example of giving. He is the great giver. Because of him, we give freely, we give generously. Our Lord Jesus is ever giving and does not for a solitary instant withdraw his hand. The rain of his grace is always dropping. The river of his bounty is ever flowing and the wellspring of his love is constantly overflowing. As the king can never die, so his grace can never fall. Father, we thank you for your graciousness, most clearly manifested through the giving of your son and his sacrifice for our sins. And please, let that be the motivation for our giving. Let us understand grace and not give because we think that it would earn 
favor from you, but see giving as a form of worship, as, as an outpouring of our thankfulness for what Christ has done for us. Just please help us to keep that straight in our minds, Lord, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't verge into some sort of works-based salvation or favor-earning salvation. We thank you for what your Son has done for us, and it is a wonderful privilege. Really, it is a gift itself to be able to worship you through our lives, through our giving, through any generosity, to give back a little of what you have given to us. Help us to see things that way, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.